Well, hello and greetings, everyone. This is Hear Her Sports. I'm your host and producer, Elizabeth Emery. We have a terrific episode, as always, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Since talking to Tori, the lightweight rower in episode 119, I've been looking more into the sport, thinking about fueling properly, the prevalence of reds in both men and women. So it's a special treat for me to have internationally competitive lightweight rower Michelle Sexer here today. And thanks to Tori for making the introductions. Michelle and I talk about what's great about the double, difficulties she's had making weight and staying sane while doing so, the Olympic experience, and starting her serious training for a spot on the Paris Olympic team in 2024. Michelle and I had a good long chat. She is awesome, and we have a bunch in common. Most of our conversation is here in the episode, but there's also a fantastic portion available soon as exclusive content for Hear Her Sports patrons at the $5 level and above. Join Patreon at hearhersports.com Patreon to hear more from Michelle and all the other patron-only content. Well, now, on to meet Michelle. Olympian Michelle Sexer is a lightweight rower. At Tokyo 2020, she finished fifth in the lightweight double skulls, an incredibly exciting race where the top five boats were less than a second apart. She has a long list of international and national results, including a win in the lightweight double skulls at the 2020 World Rowing Final Olympic Qualifying Regatta, and a second in the open weight double skulls at the 2020 U.S. Olympic Trials. She's been a U.S. national team rower for nine years. Michelle was born in San Luis Obispo, California, and began rowing at age 14 after seeing how much her older sister was enjoying the sport. She attended University of Tulsa, Oklahoma, a D1 school on a full-ride scholarship. She then earned an MBA at the same school and transitioned into coaching there. Once out of school, because she wanted to try out for the national team, she decided to learn how to scull, which is rowing with two oars as compared to sweep rowing, which is with one. As I mentioned, Michelle did make the national team for nine years, but she missed out making the 2016 Olympic team and struggled with injury. She and rowing partner Molly Reckford came back strong made the 2020 Olympic team, set a world record in their semi-final race there before an excellent, tough final. Well, welcome, Michelle. I can't tell you how excited I am to talk to you today. That is wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on today. Sure. You know, like, let's just start by talking a little bit more about your sport. Tell me about lightweight double skulls. The lightweight double skulls, it is a really challenging event. So for lightweight rowers, the double is the only boat class that's in the Olympics. And on the women's side, so that means there's only two seats for the entire team. And you have to average uh, 57 kilos between your boat. So we're, we're quite small people. And um, what's really fascinating about this boat in the sport and competition level, like at the Olympics, is that because everyone is in this weight class for the boat, you get boats from so many different countries that are all so similar in speed. In the heavyweight boats, you might have, you know, these standout athletes that are huge, tall, long arms, stronger, bigger than other countries. But like I said, for lightweight rowing, where everyone's mandated to the same size, you get really tight margins between the boat classes. And that's what makes, you know, much like our Olympic final in Tokyo, one second separating the entire field. And it really just does come down to that game of inches of who can just squeeze out, you know, one hundredth of a second, one tenth of a second in that last few inches at the finish line. I'm so glad you explained that because I hadn't realized that there was actually a reason why the racing is tight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly for the lightweights, like I said, there's, you know, to be 57 kilos, you're not going to get someone that has, you know, much more height or really long arms. Or we use the rowing ergometers, the indoor training machines. We use those for kind of a power and fitness test. There's not going to be a lightweight woman who's 10 or 15 seconds faster than the other. You get really small, small margins on that. If you looked at the ERG scores for 2000 meters of everyone who was in our A finals, they'd all be within a couple seconds of each other. And that's just from the physiology point, right? The, the strength and power standpoint. So it comes down so much to how well you can row the boat, how good your technique is, and then just strategy. You know, can you time your sprint? Can you time your moves throughout the race just perfectly that you can squeeze out those, those last few inches at the finish line? 
That's actually pretty cool. So now I like the sport a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other part that's really fun about it. So what Molly and I did last summer as part of our preparation for the Olympics was we had won the lightweight doubles trials and we decided for a preparation race before the Olympics that we would go race the heavyweight Olympic trials. You know, these girls are probably 30 seconds faster than us on the ergometers. They're taller, they're stronger, you know, much more muscular. And we thought we would just, you know, show up and get the great race experience, test ourselves and see what can happen. And it was a great experience for us. We came in second, which, you know, meant we were only one second away from also <laughs> making the Olympic team as heavyweights in the double. But as lightweights, it really forced us to learn, if I can describe it, to row with really good mechanics, really good suspension, really good technique, because we knew we couldn't outpower these women. We didn't have more muscle or things like that. And we had to just race as smart as we could, time our sprint as well as we could. And um, I think it forced us to really come together and, you know, try and row to be greater than the sum of our parts. And so that was a fun exercise just to be <laughs> two pups racing the big dogs. Right. You know, I, I have rowed myself. And so I, I have experienced sort of that synchronicity that happens when you're rowing with you know, really good other rowers, then you're all combined. It's hard to describe though. And it's unique in that way where being together matters so much. Oh, absolutely. The double, and that's why the double, it, it's my favorite boat class for that reason, because there's, you know, there's two of you, but there's also only two of you. So you feel each other so much the speed that Molly and I can get when we are completely in sync, you know, we're putting our blades in the water at the exact same moment with the exact same motion. We're picking up the load of the boat, of our bodies, of the equipment at the exact same time, and then carrying that power all the way through the rowing stroke together. It's like you can get, you know, we would call that free speed. So how much more speed can we get? Not by training harder or being stronger, these things, but just by moving as if we were two humans in one body. I think that makes it a really special thing and it gives you, yeah, this free speed, this exponential increase of how fast you can go simply by matching each other. And, you know, with that comes this whole, <laughs> all these life lessons about compromise and matching and, you know, really feeling another person rather than resisting their emotions, just almost having this kind of mind meld sixth sense of how the other person's going to move or respond to different conditions, wake, launch, wake, wind. So it's a, I think it's a, it's a pretty special thing to experience in sport. How do you train for that? How do I train? <laughs> um, half or how do you guys days. together do you train for that? Yeah. So it's, um, it's interesting. So our, some of our lead up will actually just do in singles. And I think, you know, much like any relationship, first learning to be the best version of yourself as an individual making sure I'm in touch with my stroke, my power, my fitness. And that's me being in my single, in my one-person boat, where I can see the way that stern deck is moving, feel how I'm interacting with the water. And then, you know, once Molly and I have spent time in singles, really honing in on our own skills, becoming the best versions of ourselves, then we'll transition to the double. That's where I think this lesson of, you know, compromise and kind of giving yourself over is so important. Just a lot of miles of feeling them and, I'm listening to what coach is correcting Molly on so that I can kind of be prepared for what changes she's trying to make, know what she's going through. And, you know, with that, there's also definitely a, a kind of a psychological and emotional part to it. That's, you know, days that if Molly shows up and she's having a, a stressful day or she's, you know, a little more fatigued or tired or I'm more fatigued or tired, kind of being able to recognize that in another human and, kind of opening yourself up to allow space for them to be there. You know, we're not always showing up every single day in the same positive mood with the same loose hips and strong lats and all these things and kind of being able to feel not only what your partner is providing to the boat, but what they might be struggling with on that day. Yeah, it's a, it's a challenging, but it's, 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 a, it's probably, a, you know, a deeper level to learning to row a double than most people might think about when they just watch two people rowing down the course in synchronicity. So. What's been the hardest thing for you to learn in that double? Mm. I think, you know, we came into it in pretty different points in life. I, you know, had a lot of pent up frustration after not making the Rio Olympic team. And, you know, I'd been at it for a few years and it really felt like my last shot, you know, to really go for the Olympic medal, to make the Olympic team, all these goals I'd been working 
for years for, and I kept getting so close. And, you know, there were a lot, a, a lot of successes along the way with World Cups and other things, but I hadn't quite been able to reach that top level. And so this was my final moment. This was my last chance. And Molly came into it very new. You know, she had made her first team in 2019 in the quad, which is a non-Olympic event. Um, still a great boat, but that was her first taste of any sort of U.S. experience. She'd only travel abroad once for racing. And so we were coming into it from very different perspectives. You know, she was talking about Paris. She was talking about the L.A. games. And for me, I was like, this is, you know, I've got two months to get this right. So that was a bit of a challenge of kind of seeing that we had different perspectives of what this final moment was going to be at the Tokyo Olympics. And then also with that, I think learning from it and making it a positive, you know, she brought in this freshness and greenness that I probably needed that rejuvenation brought into my life. And I could bring to her, you know, years of experience or, Hey, in my double in 2015, we did it this way and it really didn't go well. Or, Oh, this was something my double in 2017 did. Well, it was super helpful. Are you open to trying it? I think kind of that yin and yang came in and it it really helped us. And the other level that I think I learned the most from this double was, um, like I said, kind of having that deeper awareness to what your partner might be going through and even what your partner might need to be a successful athlete. One of the exercises we did was we sat and we, um, it was like, sit and write down what you think your partner needs to have like the most successful race day possible. And so I sit and I think of Molly and like, you know, what helps her get focused, what helps her row well, what, what's the environment like, what's the coach's tone like. And she did the same exercise for me. And what was interesting was that we read them to each other and we were both maybe only 60% accurate. So it was a good exercise, but it, you know, it forced us to kind of open up that communication of, you know, for me, I actually, before race day or before, you know, really hard interval training, I like a lot of quiet focus. And in that time I'm visualizing, I'm visualizing myself taking good strokes, doing a little breath work, kind of getting centered and setting like, what are my goals for this workout or for this race? And how can I go execute better than I think I'm even capable of? And for Molly, she likes that. That's not Molly, right? She likes lightness. She likes fun playlists. She likes some, you know, maybe it's happy kind of little dance party to get her loose and relaxed in the mind. And it sounds like a small exercise, but I think being really aware of what your partner needs to be fast, to be their best version. And then kind of meeting them halfway is, it was really opening. And I, and I hadn't really communicated or connected with a doubles partner like that before. And I think it just gave me such a deeper level of appreciation of what you can experience with another human through sport. How do you meld wanting quiet and wanting a dance party? <laughs> <laughs> I think some of it is even just acknowledging, you know, maybe because she's laughing and cracking jokes and kind of dancing around doesn't mean she's unfocused, you know, which right, right. to the to the first eye, I might be like, why is this young girl not focused? We're about to go race the Olympic qualifier. But, oh, that's her actually staying loose, you know, and in rowing, loose is fast, right? Brace the core, loosen the shoulders, you know, brace the hips, like loosen the grip, you know, for her then seeing the same in me that if I'm quiet or have my eyes closed or I'm maybe not engaging as much discussion is not because I'm mad or not because I'm tense or anything. It's actually me just finding like a really nice, quiet kind of meditative place before I go, you know, rip people's heads off. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And do you guys train all the time together? We do take some time apart. And I think that's that's really great for both of us. So especially during lockdown year 2020, when they first canceled the Olympics, that was, you know, a really challenging and emotional time. Um, we didn't know if it was canceled or postponed for the U.S. We still had to get the boat class qualified. So the U.S. didn't even have a spot guaranteed for the lightweight double yet. And in that time, I actually went and I spent a lot of time during lockdown up in New England, hiking the White Mountains, you know, biking through Vermont, really just getting back in touch with what it meant to challenge my body, push my body in completely different sports and ways and find a different mindset other than splits and intervals and weights and watts. And um, that was really great for me. I think taking a little bit of a step back from it helped a lot going into the Olympic year that I felt more refreshed with the sport and realized how much I missed it in those couple months. And for Molly, you know, she went to Boston, spent her time completely immersed in the sport, worked with some really fantastic coaches out of Harvard, trained with a really great training group, you know, with Jevy Stone and Mary Jones, you know, current and former national team members. 
And so again, we both had very different needs that had us, you know, set up for that Olympic year starting January 1st when we got back in the double. We're both much better versions of ourselves. And I think if we had stayed in a kind of cookie cutter environment for each other. And did you know right away that the two of you would be a good pair? Oh, gosh. It's hard to say. I knew <laughs> there's one moment that does come to mind. It is a trials event. So in order to make the Olympic team in the lightweight double, you go to trials, you show up. If you win, you are the boat. But U.S. Rowing actually before that, they before COVID canceled everything, hosted a selection camp event. So they brought in the top four lightweight women who had made the lightweight double at various points throughout this Olympic quadrennium. And they put us together, the four of us, to select the two top fastest girls to make the double, which would still have to go on in race trials to win, but it would be facilitated through a selection camp. So I actually was not selected to that top double. I, I did not make that top double. And luckily, it is still a trials event. So even though U.S. Rowing had selected their top double, any boat could still, you know, go make a combination and show up to trials to try and contend against who U.S. Rowing had selected as the fastest boat. So I didn't make the top double. U.S. Rowing announced that. And I I knew Molly's coach, so I called him up and said, hey, I know you have this girl. She stroked the lightweight quad in 2019. Can I try a double with her? And I, I really knew nothing about her. We hadn't met. <laughs> wow. And I, I flew out to Sarasota. I showed up. And, you know, the first day there, he had us just doing some steady state training in singles so I could get my legs under me after the long flight. And of course, that day in Florida, it was torrential downpour when I showed up to the boathouse. And <laughs> there, it was, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, but there was no lightning and the water was flat, which means it's still rowable. <laughs> it's miserable and almost terrifying looking, but it's rowable. And so I went ahead, you know, and I got my boat down and unstrapped it and went ahead and launched. And I noticed that Molly was one of the only other people who was going and grabbing her single to launch in this torrential downpour. And there was just something about it. You know, most of the other girls took to the ergs or took to the treadmill or the spin bike. And there's certainly something that I think you learn a lot about a person just seeing that as long as it's rowable, even if it's going to be miserable, they're still committed to getting a good training session in. And so I, I certainly knew there was a glimmer of her being cut from the same cloth as I was in terms of a little gritty, you know, willing to work hard on the tough days and um, just being excited to go faster. Do you remember what your attitude was or sort of, you know, like what brought you motivation when you were not selected as the USA team boat for the trials? Yeah, that was that was a really hard day. You know, it was again in lightweight women, even in selection camps, all those margins, you know, you're doing away and it could be a half second faster with one partner one day, a half second slower the next day. No one was, you know, the margins were all within a second of each, or two of each other with unseat races. And that's really challenging. But yes, the coaches sat us down. They announced that the double that they would designate as the fastest boat out of camp. And their recommendation was an athlete called Mary Jones and an athlete called Emily Schmieg. And Emily was my doubles partner in 2017. We had a great campaign together. We won bronze medal at world championships together in 2017. In 2018, she went on to form a double with Mary. She rode again with Mary at trials in 2019, but I was with Christine Cavallo. And Christine and I beat Mary and Emily in 2019 for those double seats. So U.S. rowing, yeah, they sat us down. They said, Mary Jones and Emily are the top double at this camp. Thank you for coming. Have a great trials. And there were a lot of emotions. You know, I have nothing but respect for those athletes. They had fantastic combination. But I knew I wasn't done, and I absolutely was not going to go down without a fight. And so there was probably about 20 minutes of ugly sobbing. <laughs> and I really, you know, I look back at that version of myself, and I'm really proud of this moment that there was just a second where I stopped ugly crying, and I pulled out my cell phone, and I called Casey Galvanic, the head coach at Sarasota Crew, who had coached that lightweight quad in the previous season. Like I said, I, I, I wish this was something women did more for themselves. I'm really proud of that moment. The ability I found from a, a deep, deep desire within to stay resilient and say the end goal hasn't changed. My goal is still to make the Olympic team. My goal is still to try to win an Olympic medal. Until that finish line buzzer sounds at Olympic trials, then this fight is not over. That's cool. Yeah. So I called Casey. I talked to him. Eventually, Molly and I got in the double. I 
you know, shared some of my experience with her at that selection camp because Molly wasn't even invited to that selection camp. We actually dubbed our training season the 2020 Revenge Tour (laughs) (laughs) and joked that it was like a concert tour that had multiple stops along the way, including but not limited to lightweight Olympic trials, heavyweight Olympic trials, the Olympic qualifier in Lucerne, Switzerland, and then, of course, Tokyo. So, yeah, it's hard. You know, I think there's a lot of that in sport and in life where people are going to tell you no. They're going to tell you you're not good enough yet. And the best advice I can give anyone is that you're the only person that can truly make that decision. You know, you can choose to accept that, you know, and kind of walk away with your tail between your legs or, you know, stand up and fight and fight for yourself and fight to be a better version of yourself and who you are today as an athlete, fitness, strength, power, erg score, skill, whatever it may be that that might be who you can be today, but you can be better. You know, there's, there's absolutely potential that all of us can strive for. And I think just keeping the attitude, you know, keeping the head on your shoulders to fight for that improvement. It's, it's so possible. And that, yeah, that was a big learning moment for me is how much my attitude could positively impact the outcome. Just that willingness to fight, you know, that belief in myself and not letting the the people get you down. That's one thing I love most about sports is, you know, this endless possibility of improvement. Absolutely. Yeah. If we can roll with that a little more, I think there was so much I learned about sport being an avenue for that. And even just myself, you know, being able to, that life is attitude and sport performance, among other things, is attitude. So we had to go race the Olympic qualification race in Lucerne, Switzerland, which meant, you know, there's only so many countries that are given a bid to the Olympics to sit on the start line for the lightweight double. So we had to go qualify a spot for the U.S. in Lucerne before Tokyo this last summer. And we'd done well in the heats. We had done well in the semi. And we woke up the morning of the final. And, you know, we were so committed to making sure this boat got qualified. And I rolled over and looked at Molly. We're in this adorable little European hotel. You know, the beds are all tiny and close together. And she said, let's go make today a great day. I nodded and we smiled and we got a little giddy and then, of course, nerves came on. But I think there's so much power in that, that you can wake up and choose to make this the day. You know, assuming you've prepared and put in, you know, the preparation, the training, all these things. But the final piece to that puzzle is your attitude towards it and choosing how you're going to execute and the version of yourself you're going to be in that final moment of the race. You know, the moment where, you know, someone flies off the start line or the field starts to walk away from you or, you know, someone takes a big move and suddenly you find yourself down a length that that moment, the response you choose in that moment, the attitude you choose in that moment to fight back, to take a deep breath, to drive your legs harder, to claw your way back into the first place position. Like so much of that is in the mind and is an active attitude choice. I just think a lot about that moment where we woke up just deciding we were going to win that race. And, you know, it was great. We had a good, relaxed, loose, aggressive race that, you know, we led exactly as we'd planned to. And so I think that was huge for me, even after all these years, like really, really kind of learning to lean on the life is attitude mantra. And the second bit to that, I'll, I'll take this one step further. The morning of our Olympic final in Tokyo, I woke up and looked in the mirror and said, I'm going to go win this race. There wasn't a single part of me that was scared at the thought of that or nervous or thought I was biting off more than I could chew by making such a bold, courageous statement to myself. And I look back just like of all the special moments the Olympics had, I think about that moment and I've never felt that way or very rarely or almost never have I felt that way in any other area of my life, you know, where I can say something bold and courageous and not feel timid or unworthy or, oh, that's a lofty goal that only really, really good athletes should get to say to themselves. Like I woke up and I said it and I believed it. And that was a really powerful thing. And I warmed up for the race and raced that race with that exact same intention. We, you know, had a little bit of a fumble in the last 10, 15 strokes, but came darn near close to achieving that gold medal. And 
I think just that was a big learning moment for me, just really not being afraid to stare down lofty goals like that, that used to, you know, be terrifying, or I used to think I wasn't worthy of stating such bold goals to myself. Yeah, that was, you know, probably one of my favorite moments of the Olympics. Like, how do you look back on that moment? I mean, you've described a little bit, but you didn't win that race. So like, how do you sort of go into the future and know that you can say those things and also not achieve them, but that's fine? Yeah. And that... <laughs> Let me tell you, Elizabeth, that took the entire fall to process. <laughs> um, and there are a lot of days, you know, I, I will say it almost kind of haunts me, you know, or I'll replay what it was like in the last 15 strokes, you know, to be making that charge, to be moving into the first place position and to have it just slip, you know, a couple feet out of your fingers. But it certainly, I look back and what I do reflect on is how tenacious Molly and I were in that race. We were maybe spent a little bit of time in sixth place, a little bit of time in fifth place. And there was a moment Molly made the call and I drove my seat and foot stretcher and or harder than I think I've ever done in, the, in my life and could feel the entire hull just buck almost from how much power I summoned when she called for a move and we moved like so courageously and tenaciously started moving and walking through crews that we had only lost to, you know, we got our bow in front of crews that had been together for five, six, seven years and had raced seven, eight, 10 world cups together. And Molly and I, you know, had met each other, you know, our first 2k race together was Olympic trials. We never sat on starting blocks till Olympic trials together. When I look back on those moments and the, the courage we had, to keep moving and charging from the field and walk through those boats. The pride I feel towards the versions of ourselves we were and the fearlessness we were when we made those moves coming into the last 15 strokes to have our bow in front of crews that, like I said, did end up on the podium. I fumbled a few bad strokes in the bounce in those waves in the last 100 meters. And um, it still doesn't take away, I think, from the crew that we were on that day, the courage we found, and even... Looking back January 1st of 2021, the crew that Molly and I were was not a crew that was one second off of gold medal speed. It was not a crew that could go 641. And so we're really reflecting on how much we improved and how far we came in such little time. Like I said, going up against crews that had been racing in international campaigns for years when Molly and I sat on the starting blocks February of 2021 for the first time. I'm really proud of those things. And it's something that I think externally, if you tell people you didn't medal the Olympics, they almost like, oh, I'm sorry, but it must have been incredible. And they, it's a very much, that's an external pressure that people think the only thing you could win at the Olympics is a medal. <laughs> and there's so much more that can be won from it, can be won from the experience, can be won from even just setting the goal of being an Olympic gold medalist you win all along the way in that journey, even if you don't walk away with that nice piece of jewelry around your neck. And I think to people who haven't quite been through it or experienced it, that might be a really funny thing to try and wrap their heads around. But I, I absolutely believe it with every ounce of my heart. Being Olympian yes. is a win. <laughs> yes. And it's... um. It's interesting, like I, you know, I'm, I'm an incredibly competitive person. Like, trust me, this has taken a lot of processing to be able to say these things and truly, truly believe them. I'm a racer. I live to win. I can be a sore loser, you know, like anyone. It's <laughs> winning is everything. I think there's a quote in some one like rowing book I have where it said something about winning isn't everything. And I literally crossed it out with a big black Sharpie and wrote winning is everything. So it's funny that now I really can sit back and reflect with genuine intention and say like not having the medal is okay and it isn't everything but after um after the finals for the doubles had finished up we actually had a after party in the athlete village with a lot of the other lightweight women's doubles and lightweight men's doubles and some of the men's fours so Characters in attendance were, you know, the Irish lightweight men's double who had just won gold. They're a fantastic crew. If you want to watch some great rowing or even just sport, if you're not into rowing, I highly recommend watching the Irish lightweight men just completely dominate their race and 
coming away with that gold medal. And I was talking to a Donovan at the end about, oh my God, I said, what does it feel like? Like you did it. You won the Olympic gold medal. Like you did the thing. And he was so humble and nonchalant and kind of shrugged his shoulders. And in this very charming Irish accent, which I won't try and imitate said, yeah, but I'm not a different person now than I am when I woke up this morning. That was a really profound turning point for me to realize this person who had, you know, I'm doing air quotes, who had done the thing we all dreamed of, admitting that he's not different simply because he walked away with the medal, right? Like he is the person he is. He's improved. He is who he is because of the entire process. And as, yeah, like as he stated it, he's not a different person after the medal than he was before the medal. That was really eye-opening to hear an Olympic gold medalist, you know, say that with great honesty. So I think it's certainly something that opened my eyes and has helped me kind of move forward through this whole process. Well, I want to talk about what's next since I'm sure there's next, but first I want to talk about lightweight rowing because as you know, I talked to Tori Mather a little bit ago and she had some interesting experiences trying to make weight basically. Yes. So I'm interested in, in your experience making weight and what you think about the sport. And I know there is some question about whether the sport will continue. Yes, it is. It is a really, really challenging piece to add to the puzzle to have elite athletes who are very type A, incredibly competitive, high-functioning athletes also being on restricted diets and having to be competitive with their body weight. Should the lightweight double go away after Paris, which it sounds like it will, I don't think that's a disservice to the sport. I I feel good about that decision. My experience with lightweight rowing, you know, it has evolved a lot over the past nine years, especially the things I've learned and things I've had to learn since my first year as a lightweight national team rower all the way through the Olympics of how to do this, how to be healthy while doing this, how to recover from unhealthy habits I learned while doing this, how to reach out and help teammates or the young women who are following in my steps as I see them committing really unhealthy habits that destroys mind and body alike. It's hard. And I think with the restrictive dieting, with the weigh-ins, with competing in a, in a weight class, it's like I said, we're all incredibly competitive people. And that also carries over into the weigh-ins. A lot of times at selection camp, there wasn't an assigned weight. It was pretty much you just went as light as you could while still staying as fast as you could. And that's a really dangerous, open-ended question to ask someone is, well, what can you race at? How low can you race at? How light can you be? I'm competitive. You know, I'm, <laughs> if, if, I, if I'm 127 pounds, but there's someone who's going my same speed at 125 pounds, then I need to get down to 125 pounds. You can. Right? That's, that's the competitive mindset. Regardless of, is that a healthy weight for me? What is my bone density? What is my menstrual cycle at that weight? Like there's, I don't have any regard for that. Like I'm an animalistic co- competition brain. It's hard to like, if I could almost ha- remove myself from my own mind and body and look back at versions of myself that struggled with restrictive dieting and disordered eating, I'm absolutely heartbroken for that girl. How hard was it for you to make weight? Yeah, it's it's funny. Yeah, a lot of people do ask that, like, oh, is it is it hard for you? And I think my experience is that it's hard for everyone. You know, if you sit naturally at 135, you still have to come down to 128. If you sit naturally at 130, you still have to come down to 124 because it's about average, right? right. So everyone is basically going as low as they can while still being a functioning athlete. And that's a, that's a dangerous thing. Yeah. Because what constitutes functioning athlete, you know, there's not the coach or the selectors for the national team aren't saying like, oh, well, are you still, you know, are you a menorrheic? Isn't a selection, you know, isn't one of the criterion. And, you know, but we know we've learned so much about the female triad, you know, without that you're high risk for stress fractures and anxiety and sleeplessness and all sorts of 
injury and other hormonal disturbances. I'd say while the numbers aren't necessarily hard for me to hit, I'm probably the shortest lightweight woman that's ever made the national team. So it's probably easier for me than it is some of my taller teammates. It's still as hard in terms of how much it has to consume your life, your planning, your training. It's, it's, and once it's on and you're living in that mindset, it's very hard to flip the switch off, especially if it's, you know, after worlds, we'll have an off season. It's fall season. You can do some trips, do some fun fall races. You don't have to weigh in. It still always lives with you. You know, that, that guilt or heaviness towards eating, that guilt or heaviness towards enjoying what we might refer to, you know, cheat meals or junk food or surplus of calories. Like it, it never really leaves you, especially, you know, in my shoes where you've been on and off of weigh-ins and restrictive dieting for nine years. It's really hard to ever turn off that switch. Did you have guidance, nutritional guidance during this time? In my early years, I did not. And then that led me to a lot of unhealthy habits. I had rowing coaches, male rowing coaches who had never competed as lightweights, who were giving me, you know, broad strokes guidance. <laughs> um, right. You know, try eating less carbs or, oh, why don't you just try, <laughs> try, make sure you sweat down so that you're not, you know, weighing in with a bunch of water weight. You know, very archaic, not science-based feedback. It wasn't until Liz Fusco, who, you know, is a registered dietitian that works with U.S. rowing, she came into my life much more in this post-Rio Olympic cycle. And, you know, since then I've had, I've stopped having stress fractures in my ribs. I've had much better hormonal balance sleep, much better sustained athletic performance, whether I'm dieting or not. She has changed all of that. Even just my my view towards myself, towards my body, and my relationship with food has improved so much since I started working with her as a registered dietitian. And that has been huge. And I'm so sad that U.S. Rowing didn't have that resource, even though they had multiple lightweight boats on the national team. I think that's an absolute travesty. And when I trained in Oklahoma City, that was a lightweight training center at the time. It had the lightweight men's four was an Olympic event back then. We had lightweight men's pair. We had lightweight women's double, all sorts of lightweights. And there was no on-site nutritionist or no science-based advice being given to us by rowing coaches. And that, I, that's an absolute travesty that U.S. rowing allowed that to happen. So like I said, working with Liz Fusco has changed a lot. It certainly taught me to manage my weight without getting too caught up in disordered eating or restrictive dieting and how to find balance without fear of food. And so that's been a huge resource. I also, I coached at St. Joe's Prep, a high school team based in Philadelphia when I was rowing out of Vesper Boat Club. And they had a fantastic lightweight men's program. They think they won Youth Nats one of the years in the lightweight men's eight. But even that scene in these young high school boys who are in these, you know, growing, changing bodies partake in restrictive dieting, disordered eating, very unhealthy behavior, coupled with, you know, what goes on in a <laughs> the camaraderie of a men's rowing program, a lot of, you know, peer pressure or bad advice towards one another. It was really challenging to see bad habits that I had to break myself of taking place in young high school boys. And so since then, U.S. rowing has changed its guidance on youth lightweights and weigh-in protocols, and I'm very glad they are at least stepping up to their responsibility towards lightweight rowers. And Liz Fusco is available to any any athlete. Is that true? Yes. Or how does that work? Is. I mean, she, okay, so I believe from a business operations standpoint, she, I think, was brought on in sort of a, sort of a contract type basis. She works with other sports. She was in Colorado Springs. She works with triathletes, cyclists, but now she more recently became, you know, an employee with U.S. Rowing. She would travel with us to races. So she was on site to help us, you know, day of weigh-ins and even just things down to managing nutrition if we're doing long European travel days, which can be a scary thing. Right. Again, there's this disordered eating or restrictive habits that lightweights have where it's like, oh, I'm not working out, so I can't eat. And, you know, in travel days, that just swirls into kind of a demon of, well, if you're traveling, you know, some of those days can be long, two or three days. And her kind of working through us to make sure we're still 
taking good care of our bodies and not being afraid of food on those days. So she, but she's an amazing person. She's so passionate towards what she does and seeing her have a healthy relationship with her food has also helped me. So like I said, if we're in Europe and we're in Lucerne, she goes to the farmer's market. You see this woman just gets so excited about the nutrients and the flavors and these things of these beautiful fresh foods you can find. And it helped me look at foods with much more appreciation and respect rather than fear and guilt. And for me, that was step one of maintaining a much healthier relationship with food. But I know so many people at different rowing clubs, high performance or not, who've reached out to Liz and she is just thrilled to help them. Not because she works, you know, on commission or anything like that, but just understanding the importance of um, sport nutrition and race day performance. And I think she is just an incredible person who's really passionate about that. So she, you know, she does a lot on social media, posting some tips and tricks or interviews. So I think if there's anyone listening that has any questions about sport performance, even if you don't compete in a weight class, like Liz Fusco, um, find her online, reach out to her. She is an incredible human being who I think there are probably countless eating disorders and restrictive habits that she has prevented herself in athletes. So that's, that's great. Yeah. So one of the things that I think fascinates me about lightweight rowing is I'm five, four and I really liked rowing, but it was a challenge rowing with taller people just because of what we talked about earlier, where you have to sync up and blah, blah, blah. So it sort of makes me sad that the smaller rowing category is weight-based because I think the same could be accomplished if it were height-based. And I talked about this in the episode with Tori. I mean, is that possible? You know, it's a really interesting thing, Elizabeth. I've actually never considered that. <laughs> I I love the idea. Like I said, yeah, I'm 5'5 five five if I'm standing tall. <laughs> and um, it's a really fascinating thing because that certainly would remove a lot of the restrictive dieting, a lot of the bad behavior that happens at the lightweight level. I don't know that I've ever considered before, but I, I love it. I think it's a great idea. And personally, I I think it's great because we do need, you know, special rig. You know, I have, even when Molly and I row the double, I'm rigged differently in my spread of the oarlocks. I'm rigged differently of the, the oars and the inboard. Really? Leg. Absolutely. Just so we can get our arc lengths to match up through the water. So Molly's coming through the water at a slightly different speed than I am. But it keeps us really matched in for me to be pinched in on the spread of our riggers and for her to be let out a little bit longer on the spread of her riggers. So it's it takes a lot of coordination. And um, yeah. it was not with ease that I match up with someone who's 5'9 in a double. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I do. I love your idea. And like I said, I'm grateful for the opportunity that lightweight rowing provides to so many people. And I know there's so much pushback to maintain the lightweight rowing class because of that. And people say, well, you know, my kid who's, you know, 110 pounds in high school, like they wouldn't be able to win races if it weren't for lightweight rowing. And I, I do feel for them. Absolutely. And I, part of me just thinks, well, then maybe we need to shift the focus a little bit from, well, maybe there are other things you're your son or daughter could learn from this beautiful sport beyond a gold medal at the youth nationals. You know, if that means that Mm -hmm. as a smaller athlete, they might be in the second boat or third boat that doesn't get to go to the final championship and win gold or. Well, tell the powers to be about my short, my short person class. Yes, I will. um, (laughs) Maybe we should hop in a double someday and we will have perfectly matched everything. That's right. (laughs) Hey, just a quick reminder to sign up for the Hear Her Sports newsletter. These episodes focus on terrific athletes, but in the newsletter, I write a bit about myself and thoughts I have about each episode and making the podcast. Also included are ways to watch women's sports and other issues in the expanding space of female athletes. Sign up at hearhersports.com. So... What's your biggest memory from the Olympics? Oh, gosh. Yeah, there are. I will say certainly I think that the after party was, I mean, the racing was incredible, right? It was a faster race against better athletes than I've ever gone up against in my entire life. And that was incredible. The start line of the final was an incredible feeling. I remember staring back, there were so many big media cameras and lenses stuffed in our faces on on the start line. And 
everyone asks, like, oh, what, what is it like to sit on the start line? Like, how scared were you? And it honestly was probably the most natural and calming moment I've ever had in my life. I remember looking back at the media as they pull each crew, they say the names of the two athletes. And so you see the huge camera turn and point on my face and Molly's face. And I actually thought about everyone that was on the other side of that media lens. You know, I thought about my parents. I thought about my teammates back home. I thought about every lightweight women I've raced against who pushed me to get here, you know, every coach or boathouse member who's cheered me along the way. And I, I just had this millisecond where I thought of them all kind of watching the same way, you know, I might sit and I love watching sports and you're staring at the TV and there's a race going on and you're yelling at the TV and you're like, go, 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 you know, come on, Michelle, you can do this. You've got this. And I, I just had this moment thinking of everyone in our corner, maybe with their, their, their fists clenched, you know, cheering us on. And it, it was really calming and gave me a lot of power, like deep in my belly on the start line. So that was certainly a favorite moment for sure. But I think the after party was really special, not because it was a crazy party, but getting to meet up. It started, you know, just in the dining hall. We saw each other after the race and every lightweight women's double from our Olympic final decided to go have a drink in the park together. And the lightweight men, a few of the lightweight men's doubles joined. And um, it was just a really special thing to have, you know, a few hours prior ripping each other's heads off, going for the jugular, you know, everyone's throwing down power tens and sprint moves, trying to destroy each other to achieve that Olympic medal. And then we can all sit down and, you know, we raised our glasses and cheers to each other. You know, the world record was broken in in our Olympic final. It used to be 648 and then it was 647. And then this summer at a world cup, it went down to 643 by the Dutch. And then in, in the Olympic semifinal, it got broken below 641 and so we all could raise our glasses and cheers and say, <laughs> I think it was one of the Dutch girls said, okay, can we please make a truce and no one go 640? <laughs> and it was such a beautiful moment awesome. to be able to, yeah, to really, these girls who, you know, all summer in my mind, I'm like, we must beat the Dutch. We must beat the Italians. You know, it's like you might have their face pinned on the wall as motivation of who you want to destroy. And then to sit side by side with them and share a moment and a laugh and a drink and a fun night and just enjoy their presence from a place of utmost respect and realize, you know, of course we started talking about erg scores and who goes what. And again, realizing they're all just normal. No one's immortal. You know, they're all just these normal girls, just like us working just as hard as us, same erg scores and similar training plans as us. And it was really uh, just a really special moment to get to see them as humans and friends after, you know, months and months of trying to destroy each other on the international campaign. I mean, it's probably the group of people that you have the most in common with in the whole world. Absolutely. Least, you know, in that moment. Oh, certainly. And, you know, just even, you know, sharing these, you know, I've never met any of these girls in my life, but suddenly it's like your best friends with them sharing stories and, oh, this way in or that 2K test or, oh, one time at World Cup. And, it's as if we've all lived such similar lives. Like I said, we just instantly were like best friends on a night out for a drink. And that was, a, yeah, that was a really special moment. So I, it certainly made me appreciate, like I said, the deeper levels to the sport and what it, how the ways it can bring people together. Are you going to go for the next Olympics? Yes. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I left myself, you know, I training all through last summer, absolutely Tokyo is my last stroke. Like I treated it as if I will never take another, like I sat on the start line of the Olympic final and said, this is, this is it. You know, this is the moment, not because I was done. Oh, I'm so over this, but this is it in the sense that this is the moment to culminate everything you've ever learned in this sport. Every race you've raced, every world cup, every seat race. This is the moment, Michelle, to bring it all together. This is your final race. And I'm really glad I approached it with that mindset, but I knew in the back of my head, there wasn't a part of me that was like, you know, some athletes get to a point where they're like, ah, I'm so done. You know, I'm definitely ready to hang it up. The whole flight home from Tokyo, I just had this part of me that was just like, I'm not, I'm not done with this yet. And not because I'm like, oh, I need to seek vengeance. And we were, you know, one second away from the gold medal and I need the gold medal. It's not from a place of, like I said, uh, the revenge tour 2020. It comes from a very different place of just, I'm loving this sport so much 
even so much more in the past year or two than I did in my previous years. And, you know, my body's healthy. Work is still remote for me, um, which is a great setup so I can train the way I need to train. I have the support from coaches and U.S. rowing that I need. There's not a part of me that feels ready or at peace to say, I think I'll pack up and go home now. (laughs) And so May 3rd of this year in Princeton, New Jersey, Molly and I will be back at the lightweight women's doubles trials for the world championship. Oh, that's great. So what, what is your training like? Like, uh, physically you're rowing of course and all that stuff but are you doing cross training strength training yeah so in the yeah again in the fall I came back to a bit of cross training as I've gotten older I've just learned to lean on that a lot more you know moving in new ways you know getting out of this rowers up and down the slides you know four hours a day so again you know hiking trail running cycling run you know it's just mixing it up in the fall helped me process a lot of the the year and, you know, get my body in a healthy, you know, more resilient position. Um, Molly and I spent a lot of the winter and this early spring in singles and we're still in singles right now. So in about one or two more weeks, we'll start working our way back into the double again, where that process is like first in singles so we can become the best versions of ourselves and really sharpen up our individual rowing strokes and then getting in the double so we can start blending those rowing strokes back together. And then, um, probably about a five week kind of what we call a five week race build where we start increasing that stroke rate, increasing, you know, race readiness for trials. But a lot of it, you know, most of the days are much less glamorous than people probably expect. You know, it's a lot of long steady state on split, some hard power strokes woven in very, very unexciting, (laughs) but that stuff, you know, building that foundation is so important especially to set up for a good 2k season is making sure you're doing your long, your long, long rows with technical endurance, you know, being able to hold good rowing posture, good rowing strokes throughout the entire 90 minutes, two hours, and really making sure that base is there, that good rowing stroke is there before we start layering all of that race readiness on top of it. You've talked about good form and technique and all that. What do you do for balance? One in the weight room, Molly and I work with a great weights coach who keeps us moving through a lot of lateral movements, a lot of external oblique work, which I think is incredibly neglected by rowers. Even though we're sculling, we're not doing a ton of rotation that gives us such a good supported core power to use our time in the weight room three times a week to move powerfully, explosively, quickly, not in the rowing stroke has certainly helped my rowing stroke improve. Mm. The other thing that helps me a lot, I think, especially in bouncy water, which we see a lot of down in Sarasota, which is where we are right now. But if I am out riding my bike, to me, I think setting the boat, setting the single well is very similar to riding the bike with no hands on the handlebars. And there's this sensation I feel on the bike when I do that. If I, you know, take my hands off the handlebars and sit up and you sort of, I'd refer it to almost like dropping the weight or trying to sit heavy on the seat where I might feel my sit bones, however many pounds of it there are, letting them sit a little heavier on that seat. Feeling those bones helps me relax the shoulders, take the tension out of the shoulders almost. I don't know if you've studied kind of the Feldenkrais method, but it's a similar thing of going internally, um, feeling your bones as a way to take out sort of any tension and restriction. But anyway, I really feel, yeah, setting the single well to me feels very similar to riding my bike without any hands on the handlebars. And so things like that, it's, it's a simple, it's a fun drill, you know, to be riding along and take your hands off and sit up and then not close my eyes, but for a second, just imagine I'm in my single. And I really do feel that translates in a way to, you can't hold tension in the shoulders or the traps. You have to just sit nice and solid on that seat. And, um, For me, yeah, that's helped a lot in the single through the waves, through the wind. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you individually or you as a a pair are working on in particular based on what happened at the Olympics or anything else? For me, like I said, um, certainly improved positioning. This year I started working with that new weights coach and even, you know, through the fall and spring, he's helped so much getting learning for me the importance of getting stronger through non-rowing positions so that I can have a better rowing stroke. That's been a huge, yeah, so a huge spotlight that I've been putting on that area. If I'm out in the boat and coach is just yelling at me, you know, sit up, sit up, Michelle, sit up, chest up. And I'm like, ah, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm trying to sit up, but it feels like then all of my muscle expenditure goes just towards sitting up and not towards, you know, making the boat move fast. So finally, after kind of that breaking point, 
the solution for me has been, you know, working with a weights coach, like I said, who can help me find positions where my ribs are, you know, tucked down nice and tight. I'm supported all the way, you know, stretcher to glutes to shoulder blades and in a way that's a, a new and natural way to move rather than, and I have the tools, you know, the resources like obliques, <laughs> rather than a coach just yelling at me to, you know, keep my chest up. And it's like, I don't have tools in my toolbox to do that. And I want to do what coach is telling me. So I think, yeah, for me, coming outside the boat, using the weight room and gym as a place to really improve movements and posture. So I'm hoping, one, that not only keeps me more injury free through the racing season, but two, can just be a, you know, we talked about those tight margins when we opened up. So how do we squeeze out one tenth per 500 meter if that's what we needed? You know, that's what we needed to have an Olympic medal. So if that means, you know, my chest, you know, my core can be just a little stronger in the third 500 so that, you know, my blades are going in the water quicker rather than me lunging at the catch. If that's how we find one tenth or two tenths, like, great, I'll spend all, I'll spend all winter season in the weight room, you know, honing that in. So it's, um, looking for those marginal gains is, is tricky, but I've, and I've enjoyed it too. It's a different time in the gym and weight room feels more like playtime than it does. Okay. Go on the erg, hit this split, you know, get this heart rate. And I think keeping that sort of lightness and playfulness is certainly rejuvenating. I love the gym. The impact of gym work always seems so speedy to me, you know, like almost immediately. Absolutely. And I, and that's great. You know, three, three to five week build in the gym and you'll see, you know, a whole new rowing stroke. So I think certainly, you know, another thing that I wish young high school Michelle had learned, <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, that poor girl, <laughs> that poor girl. Yeah, all of us. So you've talked about a ton of people like you have strength coach, you have a coach on the water, blah, blah, blah. Who is sort of the overarching manager mm-hmm. of your plan leading up to, you know, the trials, the world championships Absolutely. and eventually the Olympics? Yeah, so it's um, it's changed a lot. And honestly, I'd say, you know, all these resources I've talked about, Liz Fusco, I hired a weights coach to work with all these things that. I didn't always have those resources. And as a trials boat, it's a really challenging path to walk because you basically have to bootstrap it, you know? And until you get to the Olympic level, you're not a supported athlete. You're not a funded athlete. You don't have access to Mark, PT, you know, all these things that the quote unquote national team has access to. And, you know, there are limited funds. So I understand why U.S. Rowing does it that way, but it's really challenging. For me, I came out of grad school I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't have a weights coach. I didn't have a PT. I didn't have a sculling coach. Like you don't have funding from your governing body to make all those things happen. (laughs) So, well, yes, we do have a good, you know, village of people to have as resources now. It's certainly for new athletes coming in. It's a really challenging barrier to get over, especially if you don't have a full-time job and can't afford access to those resources. But so now the coach that Molly and I chose for our Olympic year was Casey Galvanic. And I'd never rode for him as my coach before, but it was the perfect choice. You know, he's a very, he's stern, but you know, he's, he's laid back. He's low ego. He did a ton for us. He was fairly hands off in the sense that he gave us a few pointers that we each needed to work on. Technically, he made sure we were fit and well-trained and actually really pushed us to keep in touch with the ergs and the weight room all the way up until the day of our Olympic final. Cause he, you know, kept that emphasis on, Hey, if you're not strong and fit, like it doesn't matter how well you row, <laughs> you know, there's a, you know, there's a cost of entry for, you know, physiology here. He was, he was fairly hands off, but he really believed in us. And I don't remember how it first came up in conversation before Olympic trials. He said something to me and I was like, wait, <laughs> you really believe I can win this? And he was like, I absolutely believe you can win this. And that was so impactful to me because, right, this was after U.S. Rowing had run the selection camp, named Mary and Emily as their top double and excluded, you know, I was not selected for that. So while I said, yes, I'm still going to pursue this goal and I still believe in myself, having a coach who's managing me genuinely say and mean, yes, I believe in you, you can do this, was like... That was the final thing I needed. And then from that next day on, I woke up every morning. We had maybe two weeks left to Olympic trials. And like the belief in myself had been renewed because I had a coach who truly believed in me. And he's not a coach who says compliments (laughs) frequently. You know, this isn't like your mom and dad who tell you they love you even when you lose kind of thing. Like to get, you know, to have a coach who's (laughs) who doesn't really, you know, blow a lot of sunshine up people's skirts really, truly pay that piece of truth to me. 
I think it was the final thing I needed to believe that we could win that Olympic trials race. So he was, and I think for that reason, he was a really great choice for us last summer. So we have once again chosen to work with him, you know, so we're down in Sarasota now. He's, you know, just training us in singles again, really back to the bread and butter basics. And he will, yeah, help us prepare for that world championship trials on May 3rd. That's awesome. I think it's interesting that you talk about with sort of a, I don't know, with a little bit of affection that he told you that you could do it. And one of the things that I've learned doing Hear Her Sports is that I would say like some huge percentage of the athletes I've spoken to have had that one person who have told them that they could do it. Wow. That's so great to hear. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I wonder, you know, there is so much like, again, assuming the, 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 the baselines have been checked off of like, I've prepared for this. I'm fit. I'm strong. I'm rowing well. Like I'll always, like, I believe in myself and I know my goal is to go out and win. But I think for me, having an external evaluator who has watched the way I've rode, who's watched the way I've, I've trained, who sees the way I carry myself during hard pieces, who sees, you know, all these things to truly say, I believe in you. It just gives you this deeper dimension of confidence, saying confidence on race day almost feels a little like it underserves it, but who really truly knows you are capable of achieving the thing, you know, and then it's up to me. All it is, it's up to me on race days to go out and execute, but knowing that the capability is there, it certainly um, eliminates every doubt. And it really, I think that human connection is so needed of just like, oh, this coach, this coach, this mentor, this life, whatever the person is in every athlete's life, I can't imagine doing it without, if no one in the world believed I could do it except for me, that would be a very uh, tough road to hoe. Yeah. I wonder if it's just simply like, suddenly you don't seem so crazy. Yeah. I think this big <laughs> thing is possible. I think you're absolutely right, Elizabeth. It, it, there are a lot of days that I... <laughs> think I'm crazy for doing this. But um, I think I think you just absolutely hit the nail on the head with that. So what do you do that's not about rowing? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I work for a nonprofit organization in, called the Digital Medicine Society. And I started working for them in January of 2019, actually, a former Olympian, uh, Jen Goldsack. She was in the lightweight double in Beijing. All kinds of accolades for every different boat class you could imagine called me up and said, I want to start an organization and here's what it is. And here's the topic. And she, you know, she knows I have my MBA and I've done some HR and biz ops work. And she brought me on to ask to do some market landscape analysis about how we can build this company and, you know, design a business model that fits and get it up and running off the ground from a business operation standpoint. So I started, yeah, I started that in January 19, and it has grown so much into a multi-million dollar organization. You know, we work with Amazon, we work with Verily, we work with Pfizer and Biogen. We've got 17 employees. It's really expanded, and I didn't realize how much it would improve my rowing life um, to take on wow. a, a job. Because I think leading into the Rio Olympics... I mean, one, it's very challenging to find a job that allows you to train the way you need to train. So I did a lot of, you know, offhanded coaching, some high school coaching. I coached a little bit for an organization called Team Concepts, which does sort of one-off corporate learn-to-row team building events. Anything that I could fit, make a little money to buy groceries with around training. My fear was if I took on a larger job or career than that, that it would detract from my practices, from my rest, from my sleep, from my focus. And I will say there, there are days now where it's certainly hard to have work. You know, if I come home and I want to just fling myself on my bed and take a nap, but work emails are coming in. But I think it certainly has allowed me to turn off the competitive athlete switch in the hours that it needs to be turned off. <laughs> and that has allowed me to, when I'm on for rowing, I can be that much more on because there are more periods where it's off and my mind is not thinking about it. I think times where I was unemployed, unemployed by choice or otherwise, in between rows, all I was thinking about was rowing. You know, we're looking at the clock being like, okay, in two hours, like, I'm going to start getting ready for practice. Like, make sure you're, like, loose and ready. And it's like, well, that's, you know, that's a three-hour window. I could have been really engaged in work and a career and not thinking about rowing. So the second I actually do shove off the dock, now it's like, I shove off that dock, 
and a flip switches and I'm in animal mode. You know, I'm in rower mode. I'm in, you know, whatever other versions of me there are that isn't, you know, running business operations for a company. So I would expect it also takes the money off the table. Yes, absolutely. And that's allowed the resource, like I said, working with a weights coach, it's not free, but it's invaluable. And if I were unemployed, it's not something I could afford. So it's, it certainly helps with the resources and also just the longevity of my rowing career. I think, you know, when you're fresh out of grad school and you want to try and make the national team, so you quit your job and start rowing, it's like, you know, it's fun and cute when you're in your early 20s. (laughs) And then, you know, as it goes on year after year or second Olympic cycle, it's kind of like, well, I'm 30 and haven't held a career, you know, or I'm in my 30s and I don't fully understand how, like I have an MBA and I have a business degree, but I don't fully understand how it all works in a post-COVID era. You know, there's so much that's evolved. And if anything, you know, just I'm learning more and more as an employee and, you know, keeping that part of me developing certainly helps, especially for, you know, there are at every level, there are plenty of bad days or bad weeks or bad pockets of training cycles and rowing. And if there's nothing else in my life, it's so easy to sort of fall victim to like, oh my gosh, what am I doing with my life? If all I have is rowing and I'm not even good at it, Right, right. A little spiral of doom. Yeah, it's like now I can just dock in, put my boat down and be like, well, no time to sulk because I've got a meeting in 30 minutes. So yeah, I would I would certainly recommend it to athletes who have the ability to find something, even if it's, you know, an internship, a volunteer opportunity, other areas of your life to develop has kept my love and, you know, passion towards the sport um, burning so much brighter. Yeah. Great. Well, Thank you so much. This has been really fantastic. Yeah, Elizabeth, I feel like I hope we get to meet someday in person and I do too. Go for a bike ride and just I want to hear all your stories. I can't imagine what kind of stories you have from your experience cycling and on the team. And yeah. All right, Elizabeth, thank you so well, much. For your thank time. you so much. And that's a wrap for this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for following along. Thanks for sharing. I appreciate all the time that you spend with me and with my guest each week. If you aren't a newsletter subscriber, do check it out. Between episodes, I write a bit about issues in sports and how to watch women's sports or follow along in other ways. Sign up at hearhersports.com. And until next time, bye-bye. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.